Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming back and joining me tonight on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and tonight, boy, do I have three really great guests that I'm looking forward to sharing with you. First up, I'm going to get a return visit from former Minnesota Vikings linebacker and now PGA Tour rules official, Mark Dusbabic. I learned a lot last time Mark was on the show. You know, he joined me around this time last year, and I'll talk to Mark about a season filled with rules news, right? We've had a lot of that so far this golf season, from TV viewers calling in reporting rules infractions to penalties handed down to Lexi Thompson earlier this year, this year to John Rahm getting some rulings in his favor, to Jordan Spieth in the driving range at the Open Championship and his uh, decision to be able to take a drop from the from the driving range. Was that genius? I don't know. We'll ask Mark. We'll also talk about the last two events of the PGA Tour season, and uh, I may even sneak in a question or two about his alma mater, the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers and the Minnesota Vikings, where Mark played a few seasons in the NFL. He's here to join me in just a few minutes. Following Mark, I'll get a return visit from world-renowned golf course architect Reese Jones. Among the 225 courses that Reese has either designed or redesigned, one of them is Eastlake, site of next week's tour championship and of course the home of Bobby Jones where he learned to play the game. I'll get Reese's insights into what to look for next uh, next week. We'll hear, you know, if his course sustained any damage right from Tropical Storm Irma which came through Atlanta yesterday. We'll see if he's tweaked the course at all for this year's tournament. Plus Reese has been nicknamed the Open Doctor since he's been involved in redesigning uh, courses in preparation for major championships. His courses have hosted Seven U.S. Opens, eight PGA Championships, five Ryder Cups, two Walker Cups, and one President's Cup as well. So, you know, we'll talk about all of that and uh, what it's like to have your courses out there on display frequently during uh, during a major. So Reese will be along with me to talk about all that more a little bit later on in this half hour. Then we'll round out the show with a return visit from the host of Talking Golf Getaways, and that's Mitchell Lawrence. If uh, that name rings a bell, and it should for many reasons. First, because he joined me not all that long ago and was fantastic, which is why I wanted him back on the show. Second, because his show about golf travel is also outstanding, and you can listen to it uh, as a podcast by going to thegolfnewsnet.com. And third, as an actor, he's appeared in so many different TV shows and movies over the years. Let me give you just a taste of a few of them. You remember not necessarily the news from back in the early 80s. He was on there. One Tree Hill, which my family is binge-watching at the moment. Dawson's Creek, Madlock, In the Heat of the Night, In Living Cullen. I could go on and on. Plus, his twin brother Matthew has become a great friend of the show as well. Mitch just played in the uh, in the World Amateur Championship up in his uh, adopted home city now of Myrtle Beach. And if you, you recall from his last appearance, Mitch only plays hickory shafted golf clubs. And maybe next year you'll see uh, uh, Mitch, Matthew, and I playing in that tournament in the hickory shaft light which would be a lot of fun. So we'll talk about all that more when Mitchell joins me a little bit later on in this hour. So more great stories and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. Thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me over the next 90 minutes. As you know, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from our friend Steve Ron DeNero about what they've got coming up this fall up there. Fall golf is gorgeous at French Lick Resort. Perched on one of the highest points in Indiana, the Pete Dye course hosted the first ever senior LPGA championship this summer. Ask the ladies, the views are spectacular. The venerable Donald Ross course is looking better than ever as it celebrates its centennial. Go to FrenchLick.com and save with our Hall of Fame package. Play legendary golf at French Lick Resort this fall. 
Yeah, please go online to FrenchLake.com to see for yourself, folks, how great a place it is and how you can book your stay as well. Also want to remind you about our friends over at Kinetic Sports, makers of Club Hub Sensors, the most comprehensive swing analysis and shot tracking tool in golf. And folks, if you're like me and you want to know all the data related to your swing, your swing speed, distance you hit every club in your bag, your swing tempo, angle of attack, and so much more, then Club Hub Sensors are what you're looking for. And guess what? You can get all that data for every shot, whether you're on the course or out on the range. Plus, our iPhone and Android apps have thousands of courses. They're preloaded and mapped out there for you. So not only will you be able to get your GPS distances to your target into the hazards, but you'll also be able to look back and see exactly where and how far you hit every shot. Think of what that's going to do for you, for your preparation the next time you go play that same course. The app is also going to keep track of the average distance you hit each club. No more guessing or approximating. Are you ready to improve your game? Are you ready to take what you know about your swing to a new level, either out on the course or out on the range? Well, Club Hub is here to get you there. See what they can do for you at clubhubgolf.com and use the promo code NEXT to get 10% off on all products. Again, that's clubhubgolf.com. We're also excited to be partnering with the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company here on Next on the Tee. The Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company, they're back with the same great equipment that you know and love without the retail markup that you hate. Now you can buy premium Ben Hogan irons, wedges, utility irons, hybrids, and bags directly from the factory at prices your wallet's going to appreciate. Visit them online at BenHoganGolf.com to order or give them a call at 844-53-HOGAN and learn more. Again, 844-53-HOGAN. Plus, check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Apparel Company by going online to BobbyJones.com. Their new fall collection's out. It's time to update your wardrobe with enduring style from the Bobby Jones Apparel Company. See all their great new line of fall clothes by going to bobbyjones.com. And you all know we've been partnering with Russ Holden and the folks over at Caddy for a Cure. So one of the most unique opportunities in the world of professional golf is available to you through Caddy for a Cure. Spend a day inside the ropes with one of the world's best players as their caddy. It's a fantastic way to have the time of your life while supporting our wounded service members and a terrible disease, Vancona anemia. You're going to walk side-by-side with your tour player experiencing professional golf as an insider. In addition to this amazing experience, you'll receive a fantastic gift package from Caddy for a Cure, which includes Under Armour logo apparel, an eyewear package, a tour-grade caddy bib suitable for autographs and framing for you, a tin cup ball marking gift, chest cut real jerky, and professional photographs of your day. Go online to caddyforacured.com to learn more about this wonderful opportunity. All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Mark Dusbovic. Let me remind you about Mark's background. He is from Faribault, Minnesota, which is in the southeastern part of the state, played his college football at the University of Minnesota. He was a linebacker and was drafted in the fourth round in 1987 by the Houston Oilers. He would ultimately go back and play three seasons for the Minnesota Vikings. 2006, he became a PGA Tour rules official. He was also the director of course rating for the Southern California Golf Association and a former assistant director of rules and competition for the SCGA. He is also the former president of the Professional Golf Referees Association and is currently their treasurer, and I'm honored he is back with me again here tonight on Next on the Tee. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, Great to be back, Chris. Thank you. So, Mark, I want to start by getting a quick thought from you on your alma mater, the University of Minnesota. Your Golden Gophers are off to a 2-0 start this season. Can uh, Can they be a force this year in the Big Ten, do you think? 
Well, we like to hope so every year, but uh, I mean, the Big Ten is really looking extremely difficult this year, so um, it'll be challenging for them. But I really like their coach. I, I actually uh, followed him when he was at Western Michigan, so uh, I'm excited for the team. I'm excited for the community up there. They're really um, he's really doing a lot of great things, and and he does like any any great coach. He does teaches more than just football. He teaches things to carry over into everyday life. And, Mark, your other team, the, the Vikings, got a big win last night over the Saints to start off their season. Dalvin Cook and Sam Bradford both looked very good. How do you feel about the Vikings this year? Well, once again, I, I go back to the coaching. I think Zimmer is just an absolutely fabulous coach, and um, and I think that he gets a lot out of the players. So he may have some great talent and things, but I think that he orchestrates and puts together good plans and good good uh, strategies. So, um I'm really excited for them, and I think that you know it's a, it's about time Minnesota has some uh, some success going on up there. And Mark, you know, talk a little golf. I know you're in town for next week's Tour Championship. Uh, have you been out to the golf course? Have you seen Eastlake? Has there been any damage? We had Hurricane, you know, Irma. What was I guess at that point Tropical Storm Irma come through uh, Atlanta yesterday? A lot of high winds and rain. Have you seen the course? Any damage? Well, I, I flew in on the red eye from L.A. last night, so I got in at around uh, 8.30 this morning. I went straight to the golf course, and and there's a lot of debris on the golf courses and fallen trees, but not really in play. Um, it's just very messy out there, not too much structural damage. We were concerned about the high winds, and, you know, ahead of time, they already had to put up the bleachers and skyboxes and things, so... Uh, that sustained very little damage. It's just, um, there was, we lost power today. So, um, so I didn't stick around too long. I just kind of, uh, tried to assess a few things. We didn't want to drive out on the golf course because it was extremely wet and it was still raining. So I decided to, um, come back to my sister's and let her make me dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. So, Mark, you know, talk about the preparation for the tour championship. You know, you you know, we've got a little over a week, you know, before that tournament kicks off. But what goes into the next, you know, six, seven, eight days for you and uh, and for the golf course between now and when the the tee times start next Thursday? Well, fortunately, the the weather forecast is really favorable for us. So the, it's supposed to dry out and it's supposed to clear up and. So we'll easily get the golf course ready and, and get it cleaned up and all the debris picked up. So that's not an issue. The, they have a great staff over there led by uh, Ralph Keppel, the, the superintendent out there. So um, that will all be taken care of. I'm not concerned about that. But from my, from my point, not only do we, um, you know, we do rules for a tournament, but we also mark the golf course. So I have to go do the, to find the out of bounds and and, and uh, paint and mark the the hazards on the golf course and then um, you know do we also do the field we um, I know the field is set after this week but then we work on the pairings and the times that we want to start and work with TV on when their finish time is and so uh, there's some other things involved that that we uh, that I'll be focusing on this week. And Mark, when you when you talk about define out of bounds, and the, and the first thing that that comes to my mind when when we're talking about that, you know, particularly recently, right, is is what we saw from Jordan Spieth at the Open Championship, following his drive on 13 in the final round. He ultimately decided to take an unplayable and play his next shot 
from the driving range. So for things like that, how do you guys go about determining what's in play, what's out of bounds for a situation, you know, particularly like that one that I'm guessing no one had even, you know, ever thought about would come up or come up as a, you know, a topic. How do you guys define those things? Well, first of all, the kiss of death in golf is, is um, and I see this on every level, whether it's pro amateur or, or, or mini tours, is that when somebody says that nobody will ever hit it over there, then, then that's the kiss of death and somebody will hit it over there. So, so when you are involved in the rules side and setting up and marking a golf course, you always have to prepare for the worst. And um, East Lake is actually very easy because there's a perimeter fence around the whole entire property. So that's my out of bounds. That, and then I'll sometimes, um, uh, well, not sometimes, I guess we on the PGA tour, it is very customary for us to always make the driving range out of bounds an internal out of bounds normally. Um, and that's just for the safety of, of players who are, are playing and other guys who are still warming up or practicing. So um, that's why we do the uh, the internal out-of-bounds for a driving range. Um, obviously, they didn't have it at the Open Championship, and that worked uh, well for, for Jordan. So um, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's good. So to that end, Mark, was that a genius move by Spieth to have the presence of mind to even ask, if the driving range was in play, or would any player have asked that same question? Um, no, not every player would ask that question. Some players have it in their mind that this is what they're going to do, and they move on. They're, they're, they're so focused on certain things. And a lot of times the viewer, somebody watching on TV, will look and see a rules official dealing with the player and or or maybe not even the role official there the 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 player will just act a certain way and and just uh and just proceed or, or they may call in an official for something very 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 minor like taking relief from a car path but sometimes the player is so focused on what he's doing he's not really aware or concerned about the little parts to um, to a ruling or taking relief procedure. So by having the rules official to help walk them through it. Now, there is, uh, you know, there is kind of a fine line. I'm not going to sit there as a rules official and give the player every single opportunity or every option that he has. So the player has to ask the right questions as well. I can't tell him that he has five different options for a lateral water hazard relief, and these are your best ones, but but he has to ask me those questions. You know, if he asks me, you know, what are my options? I'll give them all. But, but if he asks me, Hey, can I drop it here? Yes. It's a yes or no question. So Jordan asks really yeah, good so, questions. Jordan's really pretty good with that. So that's a, so that's a, that's a thing, right? So if, if a player, so a player can't ask you that open-ended question, Hey Mark, what's, what are all my options here? And you are allowed to tell him, what all the options are. He doesn't have to name off. He doesn't have to ask a specific question to get all of his options. He can ask a specific question or you, he, but he does have the opportunity to say, Hey Mark, can you help me out here? What are all my options? Yeah. Yeah. And you pretty much know what the player's trying to do. I, I mean, obviously Jordan knew that he's looking at an unplayable situation there. So, so the, the, the official, um, um, he, he can just tell him, Hey, your, your three options in an unplayable situation are these. And then, and then let Jordan make the decision. Jordan, um, 
you know, Jordan's more inclined to, to be more specific and ask somebody, ask the official, Hey, uh, um, you know, what, what, I'm, I'm sorry, more vague where he can say, well, what are my options here? Not specifically, can I go on in the direct line from the flag stick from this point? And Mark, you know, let's you know talk about some of the other rulings that we've seen. You know, gotten a lot of publicity this year. You know, the first one that comes to mind is the Lexi Thompson issue, and 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 Lexi and John Rom both had rulings with respect to marking their balls. Right? We had we had Lexi Thompson, you know, mark her ball an inch or so off center from where her ball mark was, and then John Rom placed his ball in front of his mark when it was originally marked to the right of his ball. Lexi penalized four shots, two for the improper mark and two for signing an in- incorrect scorecard. Rom, though, didn't in- incur any penalties. Why Why were those two rulings handed down differently? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, well, thank God, first of all, I wasn't involved in any of them. Um, but, <laughs> but you can, you know, it's, it's I will be honest here. Sometimes you, you're working a tournament and you hear about this ruling that happened and then you get bits and pieces. And, you know, the one with Andy McPhee with John Rahm, I mean, that's on the other side of the world and I'm working a different tournament at the time. And, and so you hear information and then you have to try to go online and see what it was. And I guess Andy felt that in, in speaking with him, that he tried to put it back in the right position. And, I don't know all the details with, with Lexi. I saw the video of it. Um, you know, Lexi didn't, she didn't bring her ball up to clean it even. She just li- lifted it up a little bit and moved it over. I mean, it just, to me, it was a little bit more glaring with hers. Um, although I, I can't say that, you know, when you're in the heat of the moment with the rolling, it's really kind of hard sometimes and you got to get the right questions out and, we don't have the benefit of the doubt of, of seeing that what everybody else is seeing when they're watching on TV. And um, so, for instance, last uh, two weeks ago in Boston, I had a ruling with Jordan uh, on Sunday after number 16. And he, he went to mark his ball and the ball marker got stuck to his thumb. And when he lifted up his finger, because he thought he placed his ball marker down, it came up and glanced. It touched the ball, but he said it didn't move the ball. So so I'm going off of what he said. Well, if you don't think it moved, then it didn't move. I mean, and so I'm calling, trying to see if, if anybody saw it on TV, if we have anybody in the truck that could relay back to me that it did move. So it's hard to see, and you as the vis- as a viewer on TV may have seen it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's clear as day, Mark. How come you can't call that? It's just not as easy. You're trying to piece together a puzzle and make a decision. So it's sometimes it's hard for the official. And, and I, I know that really doesn't answer the question, but it's, it's a, uh, it's a good way for me to play around it. <laughs> <laughs> good for you for being honest. So, and Mark, the USGA at this year's U.S. Open did away with walking officials with each group in favor of having two rules <laughs> officials at each hole plus four on-course video review locations. It it starts to feel like, and even as you described, you know, that last piece, it's starting to feel like we're getting closer and closer to NFL-style video reviews. Is that is that where we're headed? That you know, so at some point, you guys are going to be sticking your heads in a and, and a monitor to see, you know, if we got this angle, did it move? Did they place it exactly right? Are we headed in that direction? 
No, no, I don't think so at all. I, I, I do think that down the road, you know, we might have to consider the whole idea of, um, you know, NHL, Major League Baseball, NFL, um, and, and basketball. They all have their, 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 their video room, their war room, whatever it's called. And, and, you know, and, in hockey, it's in Toronto and, and basketball is in New York or whatever it is. So, you know, we don't have that. And at some point, maybe the PGA Tour might want to think about going that way. Um, I don't think it'll ever become exact because we don't have, we have so many different games going on at the same time, so many different players. So you can't have video of every single shot of every single player. So I don't think it's going to go that way. Um, I, 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 um, um, I think that it's, it's, it's evolving and it's changing and it's getting better. Um, but, but we're not going to be, we're not going to slow down the game like that. One of the other rulings I wanted to get your thoughts on, we, it was also involved John Rahm and he had a situation at the open championship where he pulled a reed that he thought was dead and was actually, you know, unfortunately still attached, you know, away from near his ball. And he was initially assessed a two-stroke penalty, but he maintained that it didn't improve his lie and he thought it was dead and a loose impediment when he picked it up. How, how do you guys go about assessing something like that? And, you know, you know, is it improving his lie? Is it not improving his lie? It's close to his ball. I mean, that's got to be a tough, you know, every you know little inch, every little thing, you know, gets gets officiated on you know on the PGA Tour. How do you guys decide whether it's something in that situation would have improved his lie or could have impacted you know the head of his club when he swung? What do you guys do with that? A lot of times, um, the official will ask the player, you know, do you think that do you think it improved? The player, you'll find, especially in professional golf, the player is not going to cheat. He's not going to try. You know, there are guys who, you know, obviously you can try to play it to your advantage, but nobody's going to cheat. Nobody wants to try to to ruin their image or their life that way. So they don't want that hanging on them. I'll give you a quick example. I had a um, – I'll actually say the, the name. There's John Sendon. I was in New Orleans about four years ago, and he was he – was, on the fringe of the green and he was right. He, um, he had a sprinkler head in front of his ball about, about two or three inches. And, and I know, you know, he wants to, he wants to putt the ball, but he can't because, because the sprinkler head's right on his direct line of play. And, and he asked me, he said, you know, I'm going to have to chip this ball and I think I might, on my follow through, catch the, the sprinkler head. And I just said to John, I said, listen, John, if you think it's going to catch your, your, your club, then I'll give you relief. If you don't, then you don't get it. And he sat and thought about it for a moment, and he said, you know what? I don't feel comfortable taking relief, so I'm going to just play it. So I think sometimes you put it on the player and you make them make the decision. They're the ones that have to live with it. They're the ones that have to go to bed at night and look themselves in the mirror and, uh, and, and, and live with their consequences. And I think if you put it back on the player, they, they – they can make the decision. Mark, there's going to be several rules changes, you know, coming up, you know, in, in 2019 and, and the changes make complete sense and kudos to everyone who went back and decided, you know, that the game has too many rules and several of them no longer make sense. Were you guys a part of that, you know, of that decision and in, in weighing in, did you get to participate with the guys with the USGA and the RNA and those? 
Well, okay. So first of all, the USGA obviously they govern uh, they govern uh, golf, uh, amateur golf in the United States and, and Mexico, and uh, the RNA governs the rest of the world. And um, you know they're trying to make golf the rules of golf more understandable for everyone in the world. Um, sometimes it's not applicable to golf at the highest level where we work. Um, and so I think that sometimes you, you may have a couple changes that, that, that are due to something they've seen on TV or we've done, we've dealt with, but, um, more, majority of it, I think, is making it, so to speak, user friendly for the general public. And, and that's a good thing, I think. I think that, you know, it's complicated. And if it ever leads to, um, a different set of rules, I don't, probably not. But, um, you know, overall, I think it helps everybody understand things a little bit different. We, we obviously play on a different set where we will we'll play under the same rules as everybody else, but our conditions are so much different and our, our courses are so much more difficult. So, so it does make it all of a sudden, uh, a different, a different game for, for our level. But overall, I think that it's a good thing. We have one person from the PGA tour on the rules of golf committee, Steve Tool represents us. And so he sits in on the meetings and, and, um, and has uh, a voice on it. So I don't, you know, he, he can give his opinion. He can, he, he can come back to us sometimes and send us an email and say, guys, we're talking about this. How do you guys feel about that? You know, we may not be for it, you know, and, and we may voice it, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's going to go in our favor. But, um, but that's, that's sometimes uh, the way it works. Do you know why they made the decision not to implement the rules until 2019? Why, why they you know, waited, you know, this long or that long before they uh, are going to make the changes? Well, I know that they wanted a lot of feedback and, um, and they had to, we had representatives from the USGA out, um, at some of our tournaments and uh, talking to the players, they've had meetings with the players and talking about what's, what's proposed. Um, and it was a matter of getting feedback and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's such a significant change. I don't think you can just flip the switch and say, okay, this is what the rules are going to be this time. Uh, starting in 2019, have at it. You got to, with these significant changes, you got to ease into it a little bit. I think we have to look and we have to dissect it as much as possible and, and, and look at it. Um, you know, you talk about the U.S. Open and I was there at Aaron Hills and, and, and the different change in things. And, you know, the majority of, of the officials from the USGA, the RNA, I mean, they're, 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 they're great rules of golf minds. They're, they're just sometimes it's, getting our opinion on things is, is helpful because they're not professional referees. They, you know, they're, they're volunteers still. And, and so, and so sometimes getting feedback from the PGA tour, whether it's the officials or the players, it's helpful for them because they see one side of it. They see it from a volunteer side or they see it from the amateur side, which is a totally different game. Mark, before we let you go, let our listeners know, how can they, you know, stay up to date with, you know, all the things that, you know, not only you, but the rest of the rules officials are doing? How can they follow you guys and, and, uh, you know, like I say, you know, stay up to date with all the great things that you guys are doing or, the, you know, as the rules change? Well, I mean, if the rule, you want the rules of golf changes, first of all, you know, let's not, 
let's not make them too easy and, and take me out of a job. But um, <laughs> if you have, <laughs> you have, um, I mean, obviously go to, go to the USGA.org and, and uh, the RNA.org. Those, those are two great resources for, for finding out about the rules changes. You can, you can do online quizzes with the rules and we all do it at special still, you know, we may take classes. We've all passed the test and everything, but, staying sharp on things and, and staying abreast of things we we still visit those sites ourselves and and um and then when it pertains to um to the prof- professional level we we uh we have a website pro golf refs and we um and we try to educate the people on um pro golf pro golf refs uh, pro golf refs.com and um and we try to educate people on whether it's course marking or why we set hole locations a certain way why we why you would mark something, what, what happened on a specific ruling that you may have seen on TV that we were there to actually be the ones that, that did the ruling. Mark, it's, uh, it's always great to catch up with you. Thanks for your time tonight. Look forward to catching up with you at the Tour Championship next week. But, uh, you know, above and beyond that, uh, we, I certainly appreciate your time. You're always fantastic. Well, Chris, we, 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 we appreciate your support that you always give us and, let me know what day you're going to come out there so I can come out and see you in person. I appreciate that. I will. I'll get in touch. Take care, Mark. All the best of uh, best of luck to you and, uh, and to Stephen Cox and the rest of your crew. I look forward to catching up with you. Sounds great. See you then. See you, Mark. That's uh, Mark Dusbavik. And, again, go online, progolfrefs.com. If you want to see, you know, like he said, you know, why they did something, what the rules are, and, and, uh, and, and learn a lot about what they're doing and uh, the rules of golf. It's a fantastic site. Mark is, is, is fantastic. We've had him on the football show as well. And I uh, can't thank him enough for his time tonight. And uh, we look forward to catching up with him. Uh, like I say, hopefully I get the opportunity to meet with him at the Tour Championship next week and then get him back on the show real soon. Before I get to my next guest, Reese Jones, I want to give a couple of shout-outs to our sponsors. First, I want to remind you about our friends over at SyncIt.com. You know how we like to keep things on the positive side here on Next on the Tee and have a positive approach both in life and out on the golf course. Well, we're excited to be partnering with the folks at SyncIt.com. Keep putting that positive thought of sinking the putt in your mind with their great line of T-shirts and hats. To win any tournament, you got to sink the final putt. We all wake up every day to finish strong, sink the putt, close the deal, work hard, get better each and every day. Have the confidence to push forward towards your dreams with unwavering passion, and you're going to sink it in life. Check them out online at sinkit.com. Also want to give another shout out to uh, our sponsor, Kinetic Sports, maker of Club Hub Sensors, the most comprehensive swing analysis and shot tracking tool you're going to find in golf. If you're like me and you want to know all the data related to your swing, your swing speed, the distance you hit every club in your bag, your swing tempo, angle of attack, and so much more than Club Hub Sensors are what you need. And guess what? You can get all of that data for every shot, whether you're on the course or out on the range. Plus, their iPhone and Android apps have thousands of courses. They're preloaded, mapped out for you. So not only will you be able to get GPS distances to your target and to the hazards, but you'll also be able to look back and see exactly where and how far you hit each shot that day. Think of what that's going to do for you for your preparation to play the course the next time. The app will also keep track of the average distance that you hit each club in your bag. No more guessing or approximating. Are you ready to improve your game? Are you ready to take what you know about your swing to a new level on the course or out on the range? then Club Hub is going to get you there. See what they can do for you by going to clubhubgolf.com and use the promo code NEXT to get 10% off on all products. Again, clubhubgolf.com. 
All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Reese Jones. Let me remind you about Reese's background. He's from Montclair, New Jersey. Comes from an extremely talented golf course design family. His father is legendary golf course designer Robert Trent Jones. And both Reese and his brother Robert Trent, Trent Jones Jr. have done outstanding new course designs plus renovation pro, uh, projects as well. Reese graduated from Yale and did his graduate studies at Harvard. Following uh, college, he went on uh, into the family golf course business with his father and his brother. In 1974, he stuck out on, struck out on his own. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, he has designed and redesigned over 225 golf courses, including remodeling seven U.S. Open sites, eight PGA Championship courses, five Ryder Cup courses, two Walker Cup venues, and one President's Cup site as well. Locally, he has redesigned Eastlake Golf Club, which is the site of next week's Tour Championship, as well as the Atlanta Athletic Club, the Charlie H. Golf Course, and the Oconee Golf Course out at Reynolds Plantation, to name just a few locally. You can also see his great work at Torrey Pines, Cog Hill, Oakland Hills, Fire, uh, Falcons Fire, Pinehurst Number no. 7, Hague Point Club, Ocean Forest Golf Club, and the Waldorf Astoria Golf Club, to name only a few of those. Here are just a few of the awards he has also been recognized for. He won the 2013 Donald Ross Award for the American Society of Golf Course Architects. He was inducted into the New Jersey Sports Writers Association Hall of Fame back in 2012 and the Northern California Golf Association Hall of Fame in 2015. He was Golf World Magazine's 1995 Golf Architect of the Year and given the Golf Course uh, Superintendents Association of America's Old Tom, Mor Tom Morris Award back in 2000. 2004, and I am deeply honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Reese. Thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, glad to be with you, Chris. So, Reese, as uh, I was just talking to Mark Dusbavik, uh, you know, one of the PGA Tour rules officials who's here in town for the Tour Championship next week. Uh, curious to get your thoughts. Have you been out to East Lake to uh, assess any of the damage that might have occurred uh, as we had uh, Tropical Storm Irma come through town last night? Well, my last visit was about three or four weeks ago, and the place was pristine. Ralph Keppel does a great job there. Um, but uh, they really got they got hammered with some rain, got uh, 40, 50, 60-mile-an-hour winds. They lost only five trees. There's a lot of debris out there. Um, and the bunkers have uh, really – the sand has been moved around the bunkers, but uh, it's really not that bad, and uh, it's going to be back in shape in time for the Tour Championship. And Reese, last year the, the nines were reversed, and you made some tweaks with a fairway bunker on 12 and some slight modifications on 16 and 17. Any new modifications in preparation for this year's tournament? No, but we're always looking at it because it is the annual stop of the Tour Championship. So uh, we're going to meet with Steve Winslow during the event this year and just look at a few possible changes, maybe on number one. Uh, but for the most part, we've been working at East Lake for 22 years, and uh, it keeps getting better, and the players uh, are challenged at the same time. They like it very much. So, Reese, do the players come seek you out during the tournament, you know, to pick your brain or try to get thoughts about, you know, strategy to play the golf course, try to gain some sort of edge on the rest of the field by, uh, you know, trying to spend some time with you? Well, not really at Eastlake because they've played there before, so they know what they're, to de they're dealing with. But at U.S. Opens or PGAs, when they're only playing the golf course once every 10 or 15 years, uh, yeah, they do seek me out. They, they seek the other architects out, too, uh, just to get an idea of what 
<clears throat> the design style is, what the green contours are going to do, what the speed of the greens are, uh, really what the chipping areas are going to are, are going to affect the play, and, and also uh, basically uh, where not to hit it. So, Reese, when, when, when people come to you, engage you to build, you know, either a new golf course or, you know, to redesign an existing one, when you go visit a piece of property, what are you looking for that tells you whether this is going to be, you know, a good parcel of land to develop a golf course on? And have you ever had to tell someone, you know what, this just isn't a good spot? Well, um, there, even a flat piece of ground can be turned into a great golf course. Um, so... Uh, you look for sometimes the great sites, like I'm working on two right now, one in Mexico, in Loreto, Mexico, on the Sea of Cortez, it's called Danzante Bay, uh, probably has the most diverse site in the world, uh, and then I'm working on Playa Grande in the Dominican, that has 10 holes on the cliffs on the ocean, so those are God-given sites, uh, there aren't many of them, uh, so you really look for topography, you look for um, vegetation, you look for, um, you know, holes that are going to be different. Uh, you, you're actually very happy if you have, of course, like Ocean Forest. Uh, it's on the ocean. And then you utilize the dunes there. Uh, so, yeah, I've been very fortunate in getting some great sites like Cascada, Rio Seco, and Las Vegas. So uh, you get the great sites. If you don't take on too many jobs, uh, you really can wait for the great sites. And Reese, you, you've done so many projects. Is is there a, a golf course or maybe a specific hole that you've created when you stand back and you visit it when it's all done? You go, wow, that turned out to be a beautiful golf hole. Well, uh, yes, I, I think it's Danzante Bay, our 17th hole. It's like the seventh hole with Pebble Beach. Um, and um, I got the client to, um, he, he and I found it together, and uh, we created the hole together. And I mean, I just, I don't think I've ever had a better, uh, cliffside hole, uh, before. But then you have, uh, you know, this, this one at, uh, Playa Grande. I've got all these holes right on the cliff and the, the, the ocean meanders in and out. So I can work in and around the ocean. It's not a straight line. Uh, so I've got a lot of great holes there. It's hard to pick one. Um, but then you get a hole like the 18th hole, Ocean Forest, um, which is, Right, right on next to the dunes, and uh, so I mean, I've been very fortunate to get some great sites, and um, I think it's harder as an architect when you get a great site because then you have to do routing after routing to optimize the site. The flat site, there's a lot of things you can do, and the site doesn't dictate the uh, layout. And Reese, when you go out and and play, can you just go out and enjoy? being outdoors and, and, you know, playing the golf course and being with friends, or is the architectural eye always on and thinking, boy, I, I would have done this whole differently. I would have put a bunker there. I would have taken that tree out over there. Can you turn it off when you're playing? Um, yeah, to some degree I can. If you don't turn it off, you can't play well. Uh, but just like I was playing Nantucket Golf Club, one of my courses that I'm very proud of, one of the pro Mike Demarcus and, and I, he and I went around the course, just the two of us played the course. Uh, he gave me a lesson, and I told him the things we ought to do uh, as far as improvement. <laughs> so uh, it worked out pretty well. Reese, when, when you see Dustin Johnson 
do what he did in the playoff a couple of weeks ago against Jordan Spieth and, you know, drive the ball, you know, out across the water, hit it 360, only have a lob wedge left to the hole, you know, plus the number of over 500-yard par fours that we have now out on tour, and you have some of them on your golf courses. Do you ever sort of harken back when you see that and say, you know what, golf just wasn't supposed to be played like this? No, it wasn't, and um, it's hard to, for a designer uh, to really design for all the players in the field. Uh, we're getting ready for Beth Page Black, and Greg uh, Muirhead, my associate, and I are looking at this, uh, the 12th hole, with whether or not to take the bunker farther out, the cross bunker that you have to cross to get to the fairway. But we got to make sure that we don't just take it so far out that only the big hitters can, can hit over. we got to make sure everybody in the field can go that route. So um, I think it's a very different situation for us because we don't know where the back tees are anymore. Uh, Mike Davis and Kerry Haig moved the, the, the tees around, so we got designed for many, many different options. Uh, so I think the, the, the fact they're hitting it so far uh, is why Mike Davis and Kerry Haig have, have decided to kind of confuse them a little bit by changing the holes. And now we're building drivable par fours, like uh, we built the 11th hole at, at Bell Reeve. Uh, it's a drivable part four for next year's PGA, and those those holes were never in vogue in the past. And and Reese, as you talk about you know next year's PGA, as we look beyond that to the PGA, you know being played earlier in the season, you know in May, and and, and then you know the players getting moved up to March. I imagine that's 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 going to really change the selection of golf courses. That, that can be played, right, because of the, the temperature and the time of year and things of that nature. How does, how does you know, that changing in time affect a golf course and it's, you know, being, you know, prepared to be able to play and to host a championship, uh, you know, that early in the season? Well, if you're in the Northeast in May, that's like the greatest weather you'll ever have. It's so beautiful. The flowers are blooming. I think that the weather will be fine in Chicago and New York. I think that uh, really the problem is, getting the site ready, putting the stands up. Um, if you get a bad storm, you know, in March, you might have some problems getting the, the, the facilities ready. But I think the course would be fine. And I think Best Page uh, was looked at uh, this year during that week, this is by a few people, just to see how it would be. And it was really in great shape. So um, I don't think the condition of the golf course is going to be a problem. I think it's just if they get some bad weather, like in March, when they're putting up the stands, that might cause a bit of a problem. And Reese, you, you've done some work out at Augusta National in the past, and we we, see, we saw that they recently bought a parcel of land from Augusta Country Club, sort of the land behind the, the 12th green and the 13th tee. You know, is that something you're going to get an opportunity to be a part of, to lengthen? It looks like, I guess the supposition is they're going to lengthen the 13th hole. Is that something you'll be uh, working on? I've never worked at Augusta. Um, my father did a lot of the work. He built the 16th hole. He put the pond in 11. He rebuilt the 13th hole. And if you read a difficult part of the book, his biography, he did a lot of work at Augusta. Um, I've never had the opportunity to work there. Um, but I love going to the tournament. And I think, uh, they're doing the right thing because, uh, what, what John Daly taught us at Crooked Stick is these sharp dog legs play so much differently. Uh, than they did when they were originally designed because the players just fly it right over the trees. They can get it high and they can hit it long. So I think uh, if they didn't uh, take it back, they would just go over the trees. It would be a, 
a driver and a short iron. So I think it's a smart move. Cerise, one of the things that we see, you know, that sort of impedes the, the ability to grow the game of golf is the cost involved, you know, from the green fees to the equipment. And, and one of the factors in keeping prices, you know, high, if you will, for many people and, you know, precludes a lot of people from being able to play, it kind of all goes down to maintenance costs, right? Because, you know, courses require so much more real estate now, as we talked about, you know, with lengthen, lengthening a lot of the courses, which in turn means more water, more upkeep. Therefore, the greens fees are higher. What what can we do to make the game more affordable for people to play? Well, I think that uh, when I was a kid, we didn't really expect the conditions to be so great. In fact, uh, irrigation systems weren't automated at the time, and uh, the rough would die in the in the um, summer in August because it's all pohanya. Uh, so I, I just think if we just Make sure the greens are in great condition, but not expect absolutely pristine conditions on every part of the golf course. I think it would really help grow the game and it would keep costs down. Um, we're putting a lot of natural areas into golf courses now, so they aren't maintained. They're really out of play and not really maintain areas that really don't have any, any flight or balls going into the, uh, those areas. And you can actually map them by giving the players a device that can, can track the players and they can tell you where nobody goes, uh, where their ball doesn't go. And then we can really turn those into natural areas. And we're doing that in California. Yeah, that's something we saw a couple of years ago, right? At, uh, at, at Pinehurst when, um, you know, places sort of off the fairway, it was sort of natural vegetation. There wasn't a lot of upkeep with respect to that, which then reduces the, you know, the amount of water that golf courses need need to use. Do you think that's something that uh, more and more courses are going to start to embrace so that uh, we can reduce, you know, again, reduce the cost of playing and, uh, and uh, you know, the maintenance that they have to use? Well, you, you can do it in a sandy site like Pinehurst or in the coastal sites and uh, decrease the amount of grass, but it's harder to do on soil. Uh, so you really have to just have some fescue areas or non-watered areas there. But I, I, I think that um, Superintendent, the, the Golf Course Superintendent Association of America is looking into um, a lot of things that really will require less maintenance. But we really have to educate our members and our players because they they really like to complain about conditions more than they should. And um, a bunker used to be a hazard. Now uh, we're going everywhere in different golf courses and really improving the bunkers, putting in bunker liners uh, just to make sure that it's a – a perfect lie, and that uh, that really wasn't the case years ago. So I think that um, we really can't change the players' mindset because they're going to go to the golf courses that are best maintained. But if you can really not mow them as often, not mow the rough as often, not mow the fairways as often, keep the greens in great condition, I think you'll have a very happy clientele. Yeah, and, and, to, and to your point, Reese, you know that is something that has come up from time to time. The idea that bunkers used to be, you know, a, you know, they're obviously they're hazards, but used used to be more penal, and that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. It's almost you know like players you know would rather be in the bunker than they would be in a lot of a lot of other places. Is that something that you know that you guys as course designers? are going to take another look at or that the USGA and the RNA are going to take another look at to, to try to make bunkers more penal like they used to be? Oh, absolutely not. I think that we're – see, the average golfer can't hit the bunker shot as effectively as a good player. So, I mean, uh, bunkers uh, for the for the 
tour player and the uh, the, the single digit handicappers uh, are not that difficult. Uh, a, a, a rough that really uh, doesn't give you a, the same lie every time causes them more problems. We're actually putting more chipping areas. We uh, we built a course out in, in uh, Iowa called the Falls, where we got a lot more chipping areas and bunkers, and uh, those are harder for the good player and yet easier for the average golfer. We're trying to make sure we get more players to stay in the game, more players come into the game but not leave the game, and we're doing that by chipping areas and by this uh, long long leaf tee program, which. So all these tees, forward tees, extended for every caliber player, and you know which tee you should hit from based on how far you hit your drive. Reese, before we let you go, let our listeners know, you know, about the projects that you're working on now and how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing. Oh well, um, I just mentioned the two dramatic sites. We're redoing Rio Seco. Um, we, you know, we basically redid Piedmont Driving Club that just opened again this year uh, there, and we Carolina Country Club, um, and um, we did we did the Atlanta Athletic Club over again, um, more chipping areas, less bunkers, and I think that's the trend, and you'll you'll see it. And I think the, every caliber player is going to like it. The good players challenge, and the average golfer finds it um, more uh, easy to, to score. Well, Reese, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be a part of the show again tonight. It's always a huge thrill to get to spend some time with you. I hope you'll come back again real soon and share more of your stories and insights with us. You're fantastic. Will do. And uh, Eastlake, uh, Ralph Keppel keeps in great shape. It's going to be in great condition despite the weather. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Reese. We'll catch up with you again soon. Okay, Chris. Very good. Thanks, Reese. That is uh, world-renowned golf architect Reese Jones. And, uh, boy, I, I can't tell you how excited I am for, for the Tour Championship and to get out there. And, and you, know, you know, Ralph does, you know, he and his, uh, his staff do such a great job out there. So I'm sure they're going to get, you know, any debris from, uh, from what was, like I say, Tropical Storm Irma by the time it went through here yesterday. They'll get that golf course cleaned up and looking pristine, just like, you know, Reese was saying it was, you know, a few weeks ago. So it's going to be a great tournament, and I can't wait to go out there and check it out and also catch up with Mark Duspavik hopefully uh, out there on the golf course as well. All right, I've got my next guest, Mitchell Lawrence, hanging on the line. Before we get to Mitchell, I want to remind you about our friends over at Par Bar. Energy and focus on the course is essential whether you're playing, you know, on tour, you're in your club championship, or your weekend four ball with your buddies. Par Bar, the golfer's nutritional bar, can help you have more energy and have greater focus. Eat some, you know, before you get to the first tee and the rest every three holes until it's finished, and you're going to play with both of those things, more energy and more focus to win. Par Bar was developed by a lifelong golfer and a food scientist to help all golfers play their best. Go to parbargolf.com and order yours today. In this segment of the show, we are sponsored by the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGASuperstore.com. Now, back to you, Chris. And now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Mitchell Lawrence. And the Lawrence boys, Mitchell and his four-minute younger brother, Matthew, have become two of my all-time favorite, not only guests on the show, but people, for that matter. Let me remind you about Mitchell's background. 
He is an actor turned uh, golf show host. You've seen uh, Mitchell in shows and movies like Santa Barbara, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, One Tree Hill, which my family is binge-watching now. He's been in Dawson's Creek, From From the Earth to the Moon, which, like I mentioned last time Mitchell was on the show, is one of my all-time favorite miniseries on HBO. He's been in Matlock, In the Heat of the Night, In Living Color, Dragnet, MacGyver, Night Court, Laverne and Shirley, Chips, I could go on and on and on. Mitchell has done such a wonderful job over the course of his career with doing so many great things, and one of them now is his show, Talking Golf Getaways with Mitch and Darren, which, like I say, is fantastic, and I highly recommend it, thegolfnewsnet.com, or on Audioboom to take a listen to it, and I'm thrilled that Mitch is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Mitch. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris. How are you, man? <laughs> you're taking me, are you, you're taking me down. You're taking me down memory lane, pal. <laughs> well, that's what I do. You know, and, and it's hard not to because you, I think you've been in everything. I'm not, you know, when I was looking through your bio and the different, you know, places and all the things you've done in your career, it's unbelievable. And, you know, and not just, you know, no, you've been in so many iconic shows. I mean, Mayberry RFD, Laverne and Shirley, my goodness, you've been in everything. Good for you. Well, yeah, Mayberry, Mayberry RFD was a little before my time. I have to say, Matlock, though, I did catch up with Andy Griffith on Matlock. <laughs> there you go. I did get him later. <laughs> of course, I never won. So, but <laughs> So, Mitch, I want to start off our time tonight talking about a, a recent experience that you had. And, and you were just in the World Amateur Handicap Championship up there in your home, your, your new, your, I guess your adopted home city now, of, of Myrtle Beach. You guys had over 3,000 players competing simultaneously on 50 courses across Myrtle Beach. And, and you're typically a guy who is, you know, emceeing and hosting a big party every year that, you know, is associated with that event. I think this year you were only out there playing. And, and oh, by the way, the first player in the history of the tournament to play it using hickory shafted golf clubs. But talk about what that event was like for you. Well, I have to say uh, the, the Myrtle Beach World Am, and it's gone by many names over the years, um, but the World Amateur Handicap Championship, from the time, even before I moved to Myrtle Beach, which is now 18 years ago, amazingly, uh, was something that was pretty mind-boggling to me, uh, just for the size and scope of it. There's no other, and I'm happy to blow Myrtle Beach's horn here, but there's no other place on the planet that could literally host a tournament like this. Um, you mentioned 50 plus courses and it's been at times I remember at one point it was probably about 65 courses um, and all within a 50 mile range let's say so when people from all over the world come to Myrtle Beach which they have been this is the 34th playing of the World Am um, they come from all over the world and they're able to compete in a four day four-round tournament based on their handicap, uh, and literally everybody has a chance to win the title. So it's not just based on being a great golfer. It's based on playing well over four days, and they've had handicaps from scratch players up to, you know, in the mid-20s win the tournament. And so I was always amazed by it and interested in it um, before I even started working and doing those emceeing all the stuff at night and kind of being involved in the tournament. Um, and then this year, as you said, because 
uh, we were fortunate enough to have, there's four nights and every night uh, of the event, they have the world's largest 19th hole, which is held at the Myrtle Beach Convention Center. And uh, this year we had Charlie Reimer and Damon Hack from the Golf Channel handle the emceeing duties. So for the first time in a really long time, I had nothing to do, you know, in terms of working. And so I thought to myself, every year I've been working, I wasn't really able to play. I never wanted to take away from my duties at night by playing during the day. And once I decided to play, I said, well, I'm a hickory player. That's who I am. I've played my hickory clubs for pretty much the last seven years, and that's all I play. I think I've hit my regular clubs twice in that time, uh, just playing in scrambles kind of thing. So I decided to play with hickories, and once I did that, I was talking to the tournament director, um, a good friend of mine, uh, Jeff Monday. Well, this year he wasn't, has been for the last 10. Jeff Monday, and he's still heavily involved in the tournament through Myrtle Beach Golf Holiday, who has run it brilliantly for years. Uh, and we kind of realized that I was the first and only player in the history of the event to play the event just using hickories. And so um, it was pretty, it was a pretty, it was a really interesting experience, which I can go into if, if you'd like me to. Please. Yes, please. <laughs> Uh, well, I have a, there's a, something called the Society of Hickory Golfers, and it's a nationwide society, um, and there's hundreds of people who play hickory clubs uh, that are involved through the society, and we all hold a Society of Hickory Golfers handicap. So we post our scores, all of us, uh, the same way anybody else would. Um and mine was an 18, my index was 18.6. So I kind of assumed that's what I'd be getting. And then in talking to Jeff, I realized my a really, really close friend of my wife, Ava, and mine, named Bob Paskey from Michigan, who we've known for years and who's a, a wonderful golfer and a great guy. We invited him to come down and play. He'd never played in it. And I said, well, if he's coming, I want to be able to be at the same golf course that he is of those 50-something courses every day so that I could drive him around and he didn't have to worry because, as I said, it's quite a large distance that has to be covered some days from the north end of the Grand Strand to the south. And I wanted to be with him. I wanted to ride to the course with him and come back just as part of the experience. And my friend Jeff said, okay, well, you can do that, um, but you have to – it's all based on the flights at each course are based on age and handicap. So I played in the age-appropriate flight, which for me was 60 to 69, unbelievably. I can't believe I'm saying that, but it's true. <laughs> um, and, and because Bob is a good golfer, I was I played in the 6.1 to 6.9 handicap flight. And what that meant, and I kind of had to make a choice, but I decided because it was much more about Bob being here and experiencing the world and with him, uh, what it meant was that normally with my hickory clubs, I'll play from a good comfortable distance for me is anywhere between 52 and 5,500 yards. Um, I've certainly played courses that are longer, but when I go out to play and enjoy playing hickories, because at my age and hitting 100-year-old clubs, I just don't hit them as far as people who play modern clubs. And all of a sudden, I'm in a flight where I had to play... 
Well, one day we played the TPC in Myrtle Beach, uh, and it was wet. It had rained. There was no roll, and I'm playing almost 6,400 yards. And so for me, it was almost a thousand yards further as a golf course on a on a course that's hosted the senior tour championship and you know it's a it's a real golf course dustin johnson's golf academy is there and it's a big time tom fazio golf course and all of a sudden and this is what it was for four days (laughs) was pretty much on the par fours driver fairway wood one iron and then some (laughs) kind of shot around the green that's pretty much what it was so uh it was it was a it was an interesting test of just going out and shooting the scores I was gonna shoot and having fun and people from uh you know, in, in my case around the country, I didn't play with anybody from uh, you know, around the world. Um, but they were certainly there. I they just weren't in my foursome. And I had a great time. It was exactly what I expected it to be. It was a chance to compete and to meet people and and uh and get out there and play and it was everything that I hoped it would be. Uh I not only I'll give you an idea of first of all how good some of these guys are, even in the sixty to sixty nine year old age group. Um, but there were a couple of guys that shot um one shot seventy four one day, one shot seventy three. Um both of those guys were great players great short games that was the thing that really separated them and when i went into the fourth you'll love this when i went into the fourth day after three rounds gross in terms of my score versus the guys who were leading i was a hundred shots behind the guy who was leading the flight a <laughs> hundred shots gross is, is it fun <laughs> When you're, when you're, I mean, you say, you know, you go out and you have fun and you're competing and all those sorts of things, but you know, right, you're not set up to win here, right? The, you know, playing the hickories no. and all that sort of thing, you know, and you've talked about the last time you talked about, you know, you switched to hickories because the game wasn't fun to you anymore. And, and now using mm-hmm. the hickories, you sort of let go of the idea of score and you just go out and have fun. And that, and that, and I'm sure that's wonderful when, you know, when you and your wife are out playing or you and your buddies are out playing, but when you're in an event like this, is it still fun? Well, it was because I made it fun. Um, in other words, the thing is, I had you have your own personal goals. I think if you're if you're a regular competitor, I don't compete really when I play. I mean, I play in hickory events, and I like to do well, and I certainly have a chance in those events to to win something. Um, mm-hmm. But at this point in my life, I'm not a uh, competitive player. I'm not a great golfer. I'm not a, you know, my best scoring days are behind me. I've shot even par before, but it happened a long time ago. And, uh, it's not something that, that I, I found it tests you. I'm not saying I enjoyed some of the, the shots that I had to play because a lot of them were in fairly awkward positions. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there were times when it was frustrating because I couldn't, I wasn't, I wasn't playing the game over 72 holes that I'm used to playing, you know, uh, and that was kind of the big difference. But I just kept telling myself, okay, I'm not, uh, you know, I finished 40th out of 40 golfers. Although after the second round, there were two people, I was actually in 38th place. So for two days, I I did pretty well. And then I hit the TPC uh, and that kind of 
threw me for a loop. I shot 115 that day. Um, but like I said, it was a thousand yards longer golf course. There was no roll. Uh, I'm an 18 and that was pretty much, you know, double bogey golf all the way around and, or a little more. And that's kind of what I expected myself on that kind of conditions. So I had fun. I just told myself that I was going to keep and luckily the four days, um, I had groups that were, they loved the fact that I was playing those clubs. They enjoyed what I was doing. They were trying to win. And, uh, one of the guys that I played with actually did win the flight over the four wow. days. So that was pretty exciting. He made it to the, uh, to the finals on Friday after the four rounds, Monday to Thursday, the flight winners. Um, and there were 70 flights. So those flight winners went and played, uh, at the Die Club at Barefoot Resort. And that was the final round. And, you know, I, it's like I said, uh, it's a different kind of fun. It's not going out with my wife or you and me going and just having a great day. Uh, cause they were pretty serious. We had fun, but the guys I was playing with, they were pretty serious about trying to win. So it was a really interesting experience, which is, which is really what it came down to. That's what it was. It was interesting. And, um, I really, I urge your listeners if they want to get a chance to, participate in something that's really different and kind of a one-of-a-kind thing uh, every year about Labor Day and great times at night. I mean, the convention center is, you know, the alcohol is free, the food is free, um, there's great stuff at the convention center. It's, the whole experience is pretty amazing. And, and Mitch, you've talked about next year trying to get a Hickory player flight right, for the tournament. Yep. Talk about that, and, and as you've talked about, you know, the Society for Hickory Golfers, talk about how many people are, people are out there playing Hickory Shafted Clubs. I think people would be surprised how many there are. Well, like I said, there's hundreds of them in the United States, and uh, there's pretty much in every state there's a group that definitely puts on their own kind of smaller events. We have regional events all over the country. I always play in the, mid, the uh, Mid-Pines Hickory Open in Pinehurst every year in November, and we always get 100 to 150 players coming to play in that. It's an unbelievable event at a really, really iconic golf course, uh, Donald Ross track. And, you know, there's there's tons of Hickory players worldwide. There are some incredible Hickory societies, Sweden, France, Germany, Italy, uh, literally around the world, there's tons of, of Hickory players. So for people who aren't familiar with it, they kind of look at it as an oddity, but for those of us that are involved in Hickory Golf, uh, it's quite a, quite a large group. And when I talk to the people at the World Dam, um, and I've already started those discussions, I said, you know, what I'd love to do is to be able to get a flight that's strictly a Hickory flight next year. And, um, the guy said, well, all we need is 45 players and you have your, you can have a flight. And I said, oh, that's easy. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced that I'll, we'll have a flight with 50 to 100 players without even, without even blinking an eye between, there's a, a huge Hickory Society in Florida and in North Carolina. And just between those two, I bet I can get 50 just from those two. Wow. So that way, the great thing about that to me is that within that flight, we're not going to compete at a, at a distance of course and tees. That's going to make the game hard. We'll be able to play it the way we normally do with the handicaps that we normally do. And, uh, and there are some truly great Hickory players. Um, Jeremy Moe, who, um, has won the U.S. Hickory Open title for the last, I think, three years in a row, 
Uh, and uh, he goes out and he'll win the U.S. Hickory Open, you know, shooting scores in the high 60s, low 70s. Wow. So just the, the fact that these are hickory shafted clubs for guys who can, and women, because there's a lot of hickory women players. Um, but for, for good players, they can play. And I've, I've given my hickory clubs to some of the pros that I know and some of the people who teach here in Myrtle Beach and, usually takes them one or two swings and then they get the feel of what it feels like and then they start striping them. And it's great to watch. Great to watch. So hopefully next year we'll have that and uh, we can talk about that afterwards and it'll be a little bit of a different discussion. (laughs) Yes. And do you play the replica balls too? I was looking around and, you know, McIntyre Golf actually still, you know, they'll go back and they'll make you know, the, the golf balls in the style that, you know, that they played back in, you know, from 1850 to 1930, you know, the balls that, you know, Francis Wimet played and, and, and all of those guys. Do you, do you use the replica balls or do you use a, 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 a newer ball? No, I do use the replica balls. Um, you can certainly use any, any of the softballs that are available now. And there are some players who do use those. Uh, but I love using the replica balls. They're wonderful balls made by McIntyre Golf. A guy named Chris McIntyre actually started it. And he was a hickory player, and he was driving back from a tournament, I believe, one day and thought, this is crazy. I'm playing 100-year-old clubs with modern balls. There's something off here. And he was kind of an inventor and tinkerer, and he went in his garage, and he got modern materials, and he found the dimple patterns from the appropriate times and he just started messing around with making his uh, molds of balls and he started making them in his garage and uh, he got to a point after a lot of experimenting where he was producing these really good balls and they are they're wonderful balls the company is now run by a guy named dave brown uh, an orthopedic surgeon from omaha nebraska (laughs) and uh, i remember the first conversation with dave he's a big time orthopedic surgeon and he said to me, once I found this, he said, I found myself in the operating room thinking I'd rather be in my garage making golf balls. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's, uh, he's pretty committed to it. And, uh, they, like I said, they're, they're great balls. I mean, they don't go as far as modern balls do, but it kind of fits in with the, the theme of the hickory. So right. uh, you can still hit great shots with them and you can, you know, good players can work them a little bit and, uh, it's just the whole experience to me is, as I told you last time, it's really, really fun. It's still a frustrating game. It's still everything that golf is to all of us. It's just that I feel a pretty, pretty deep connection to the history of the game every time I tee it up, literally every time I tee it up. I missed a couple more before we let you go, but you've talked about how your golf clubs, your hickories, are around 100 years old. And when I think about a hundred-year-old golf clubs, I, I would be—I would think that they're brittle. Like if I made contact with anything, you know, ball, ground, whatever it is, these things are going to snap in half. But that's not the case, right? No, it's not. Um, and it's funny because most of the time when I play with people who've never been around hickories, that's the first thing they say. If I say, "Do you want to try it?" They'll say, "No, no, no. I'm sure I'll break it." And usually, I just say to them, "Look, if..." Bobby Jones and Ted Ray and the big players of the game uh, who could hit it. Ted Ray used to routinely drive the ball 300 yards. Um, you know, I, so it, there was a lot of power and there were a lot of players who were powerful. And as long as the shafts were taken care of, like any other piece of wood, um, if they're, you know, if they're oiled and they're they're kind of kept in shape, 
then the chances of breaking them are, are not that not that good. I mean, I'm not my swing speed is certainly not. I've broken some clubs, but it was usually because the connection of the shaft and the and the club head wasn't as strong as you thought it would be. So if you hit the ground first, I've and probably in all the time I've been playing, I think I've only broke broken maybe four or five clubs. And it was usually because the, the heads weren't on tight enough or something like that, but it was never because, and I'm not sure, we haven't played together yet, and I have a feeling that the immense power of your swing, you know, <laughs> may bring this into question, but um, with my swing, it's not something I really worked that much about. But they're pretty incredible. You get a great club head. You know, these were pieces of art. I mean, they were forged heads and uh like i said if the shafts are good usually you have to re-grip them the, the grip doesn't last 190 years 80 years whatever it is uh, but part of the fun to me too is re-gripping my own clubs and being involved in that and kind of taking care of them you know it's not it really is different than today you you grow attached strangely to each particular club you have a relationship with each club that you buy because chances are you don't go out and just buy a set of golf clubs. I have, I have a mixed bag of clubs from some of the great club makers of all time, literally. And so, uh, you know, it's all part of, it's all part of the fun and the enjoyment to me. So, Mitch, have you had an opportunity to take those hickories and play some of the more historic golf clubs, you know, golf courses and, you know, feel what it was like. You mentioned Ted Ray, you know, going back to that era, you know, what Ted Ray must have felt like, or Bobby Jones, or Harry Varden, or Willie Anderson, Walter Hagen, those, that era of players. Have you taken the clubs and played any of the historic golf courses that they used that style of club on all those years ago? Yeah, I have. Uh, I've been really lucky uh, through my, not just my regular golf connections, but through uh, all the work that I'm doing with Talking Golf Getaways and, and the kind of podcast world that I've been doing for the last five, six years. Um, and I played in Scotland and I played in Ireland and I played courses in this country. And yeah, I mean, and that to me is a thrill when you can get on the old course and play hickories. Uh, and you can go up to the highlands of Scotland and play Dornick and, you know, where Donald Ross is from. And uh, that to me is there's no better feeling than being able to do that. Um, first of all, because when these clubs were made, golf was a ground game. You know, we, I, I love you were, and I meant to say this right off the top. I, I was listening to you and Reese Jones talk and, uh, to, you know, to, to have a chance to listen to Reese and somebody who's been connected to the game through his father and, um, you know, his whole family for so long. Uh, you realize that the game has changed so much and the, the style of golf has changed so much. But in the, in the early days when these guys used to play, it was a ground game. You know, it was not so much hitting these high, towering, majestic shots. It was about playing the land and giving, you know, taking what it would give you and playing different shots. And, and when you go to a course that's still like that, which usually happens in Scotland or Ireland, uh, that's a, that's a whole different planet of being able to enjoy it and, and be connected to the game. And I don't, I don't, think and there's certainly great courses today that still now are being built that allow you to do that that allow you to play a game of run up golf and 
you know, without bunkers protecting every inch of the front of the green, that kind of thing. And places like Cabot, I was just up in Nova Scotia and got to play Cabot links and cliffs and uh, Highlands links on Cape Breton Island, which is a iconic Stanley Thompson course. Uh, I played two of them while I was there. And when you get to play those courses with those designers who played that kind of game, there's nothing else like it. I mean, when you show up at, you know, courses today with just hickories, you get a lot of weird looks. But in Scotland and Ireland, they don't look at you as strangely. They love the fact that you're doing it. And uh, for me, I don't. there hasn't been a bigger thrill than being able to play those kinds of courses with the hickories. Yeah, you know, just just the whole experience. And I know you've done this as well with the, you know, all the way down to the clothes, right? Pants, shirt, tie, yeah. you know, the whole thing. Yeah. So when you when you put it all together, right, you got the hickories, you got the outfit, and then, you know, being at, you know, here locally in town at Eastlake, and I've, you know, had the honor of playing Eastlake one time. And, uh, you know, and then some of the courses you talk about over in Scotland and Ireland and, and you know, places like that. To be able to kind of put all of that together, sort of the pieces of the puzzle, if you will, and then go out and play, it's got to be, you know, something that, you know, it, you know, it, 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 it get chills thinking about what that must be like to go out there and just really feel like what those guys, you know, what, what the course conditions were and what, you know, what they got to experience. And then, you know, you get to do that. Good for you. That's got to be a tremendous thing. Well, one of the things that playing the Hickories does, um, is it gives you an unbelievable appreciation for how good they were, the players of that time. And then when you throw in the clothing and the everything else and you realize now, you know, you turn any tour event and you see what players are wearing and the freedom they have in their swings. And then you go back and you look and you look at a, you know, wool suit. Uh, if you watch the greatest game ever played about Francis Rometh in the 13 Open, and you look at Harry Varden and Ted Ray, and you see what those guys were wearing, and to be able to play the kind of golf they did in the conditions that they did, uh, it's it's pretty mind-boggling. I actually love wearing the plus fours and the shirt and the tie, and I've played in a kilt before, which is, wow. I have to tell you, this is going to sound weird, but I have to tell you, uh, it was my favorite thing to play, to wear while playing. Is that right? It was a kilt. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, you want to, we don't have to dive too deep into this, but you want to talk about freedom when you're playing? <laughs> That's pretty much it, pal. No doubt it is. <laughs> yeah. Mitch, I let our listeners it, uh, know. We went down to play, we went down to play Stream Song uh, on a golf getaways trip for Golf News Net, and um, I wore it there, and my partner, Darren Bunch, he didn't have a kilt at the time, but Vic Williams, who's now the uh, the main guy at Golf Tips Magazine, Vic and I wore kilts that day, and, man, we had so much fun, I can't even tell you. And Darren and I are going back to Stream Song next month because they're opening the um, course, the new Gil Hans course at Stream Song. And I'm wearing it again. I'm bringing it down. It's going to be my Stream Song wow. tradition. Yeah. Wow. I'll send pictures. Don't worry, because I know you'll be Please. <laughs> sure any chance to see me in a skirt you're there right I, I, without a doubt i'm all about that you know <laughs> so, so mitch let our let our listeners know who do, who do you and darren have coming up on your show how can they find it and listen to it because it's fantastic well, the show we've um we've had a, a kind of a great run we've taken a little break over the last few weeks because 
Darren went on some monstrous trips. Uh, so we kind of put the show up. We're going to start recording again in a couple of weeks. Uh, actually, we're going to Tobacco Road up in Pinehurst, which for your listeners who haven't been there, it's Mike Strand's course. And it easily in my top 10 of courses in the world. I've played it a bunch of times. But Darren and I uh, and Ava, my wife, is going to go with us, too. We're going to be at Tobacco Road. So we're going to do some shows from Tobacco Road. And then, as I said, we're going to Stream Song. We'll be talking to some people from there. And um it, it's been great we've we've been able to kind of really dive into the world of golf travel and different destinations so we're going to keep that going it's on uh as you said the golf you can just put in golfnewsnet.com and you'll find it it's on available on um itunes podcasts or audio boom or stitcher and uh we've got about we just passed i think our 80th episode our 80th podcast so there's tons of content uh, from around the world, you know, literally. And uh, one thing that, if I can say, I, I had a chance to have, to me, of all the great guests, the most mind-boggling guest uh, on the podcast a few weeks ago. And he's a guy named Adam Ralston. And I don't know if you've heard of something called The Longest Hole. Yeah. But if your listeners, if your listeners want to check out the greatest golf getaway that I think has ever been and will ever be. Uh, Adam Ralston and his partner, Ron Rutland, two rugby players from South Africa and a dog named Yubi, um, are just about to finish up a trip across Mongolia, uh, where Adam has hit a golf ball the entire way across Mongolia. He's hit at this point over 17,000 shots. Just wow. the, the two guys on this dog, uh, walking the whole way through every kind of climate and every kind of terrain you can imagine. And I think of all the podcast episodes that I've done. And as I say, we did, we've done great episodes. Um, but this was the most amazing thing to me of the guy's love for golf and just taking it to a place that nobody else literally has ever taken it to so for a really interesting listen if if your listeners can go to talking golf getaways and listen to the podcast with adam ralston from the longest hole and then follow these guys on instagram and i guarantee you i guarantee your listeners they'll be they'll be just blown away by what this is about and we're going to have adam on again they're about to finish up they've gone 1100 miles doing this um, and they're just about to finish up, and we're going to have Adam on again once they finish and, and kind of fill in the second half of the journey. So that's, that, yeah. to me, was, was, was the most amazing story I've heard, I think. Yeah, it is an amazing story, and there's articles out there all over the place, but uh, kudos to you guys for getting them on the show, and uh, and uh, I'll be certainly interested to hear how they feel once they've gotten, you know, kind of gotten through the whole thing. It's uh, It is an amazing journey they've been on. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I go out and play, and we feel good. We feel good if we play thirty-six. <laughs> we feel good. No, we yeah. feel badly after we play. Well, 36. yeah, we do feel badly. We hurt. Oh, we, no. but I don't. I don't complain anymore. Not after talking <laughs> to this guy. No kidding. <laughs> so, Mitch, let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing. How can they follow you uh, on social media? Well, on uh, Twitter and Instagram, it's at Mitch Lawrence, L-A-U-R-A-N-C-E. Uh, and that's pretty much where, uh, where we do our business. And as I said, at, uh, 
the Talking Golf Getaways podcast, and it's on golfnewsnet.com. And I really, I, as always, Chris, I really appreciate it, and, and thanks for the opportunity to be on. I love being with you. Oh, but it, oh, I appreciate you saying that. You, you kidding me? It's a, it's a huge thriller. Every time I get to interact with you, I can't thank you enough for, you know, for being generous with your time and, and coming back on the show. I hope you'll do it again real soon because I always love getting to spend time with you. Absolutely. It would be an honor, my friend. And we'll get you on I Talking Golf it. Getaways too. That's coming up soon. I look forward to that. Okay. So Mitch, take care. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to catching up with, uh, with you again real soon. Okay. Thanks, Chris. See you, Mitch. That is the great Mitchell Lawrence and, and folks, you know, his show, uh, you know, along with Darren, you know, it, it's fantastic listening to. I mean, you, you get the sense from, you know, the, the amount of time that we spend here tonight. I mean, in the blink of an eye, right? It's, it's, you know, almost 45 minutes later and, uh, and the, and the stories are great and his delivery is fantastic. And, and the show that he does with Darren is great. And you go back and you look at all the great things that he did, you know, whether it was on TV or, or in the movies, all great stuff. And, and, you know, not the least of which, by the way, folks, are the, is the time, the amount of time he spent doing Saturday night live as well. So great stuff from Mitchell. I can't thank him for, you know, enough for his time. And hopefully, like I say, we get to uh, catch up with him again real soon. All right, folks, before we close up shop here on Next on the Tee, we always like to close out the show with a reminder about our friend, you know, PGA Tour Pro Jim Estes and the great folks over at the Salute Military Golf Association. Let's hear a word from Jim about the great things that they do. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S. If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating, or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. Yeah, folks, to find out more information and to see how you can get involved with this wonderful organization, please go to smga.org. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. My sincere thanks again to Mark Dusbavik, Reese Jones, and Mitchell Lawrence for joining me tonight. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please give me your thoughts. Check out our page on Facebook. Go to Next on the T with Chris Mascaro and uh, you know, give us your comments, your thoughts. If you have a question about you know, something you'd like to ask to a future guest or someone who's been on the show, please let me know that there as well. Be glad to get that, you know, question over to whoever it is you'd like. Please also check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to see who some of our future guests are going to be. Plus, you can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free on there as well. Plus, you can check us out online. We've got, you know, we're on a couple of different platforms as well. Good friends over at uh, TuneIn.com, plus our wonderful friends over on Podbean. Can't thank those folks enough because they've been featuring our show every week in their sports and recreation section for a long time. We can't thank them enough for their support. And if you're looking for you know podcasts across all genres, 
please check it out on podbean.com. They've got so many great podcasts that you can find, like I say, again, on a multiple of different uh, genres there for you as well. So podbean.com and on their mobile app as well. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host, Bob Lazari. Every week we are joined by five NFL legends who come on and share stories from their playing days, plus give us insights into today's game as well. Uh, former Patriots Pro Bowl running back Tony Collins now with our five-star picks of the week. Plus, uh, we spotlight, we do our spotlight on the positive where we highlight two players that are doing great things in their communities because, you know, 99% of the players, folks, current and former players, are doing great things out in their communities. We hear too much about the 1% that are doing stupid things, not the 99% that are doing great things. Again, online you can find this show at nextonthetee.net, that show thursdaynighttailgate.com. And I can't thank you enough for spending the last 90 minutes with me. Thank you so much for tuning into this show. We know you've got several shows and podcasts that you can stream or listen to. We certainly really appreciate the fact that you're making Next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the T with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA pros and top instructors and media members Join us the same time every Tuesday to hear more stories about the game we love from people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the